A major development in rugby over the past five years has been the decision by World Rugby to address and deal with the rate and impact of concussions in the sport. Essentially, the hope is that positive action today will result in a reduction of the negative impact of concussions in the future. I'm Andre. And I'm Richard. And this is Rugby Deconstructed. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Rugby Deconstructed. Tonight, we're coming to you via the bunker, and with me in the bunker, hiding away from the COVID-19 virus, is Richard. Thanks for having me, Andre. Yes, um, so the, we had some plans in place, uh, some more social media things we wanted to put out, and unfortunately, um, with the restrictions in place and the safety features, we uh, safety procedures we decided to employ, some things had to be put on us. Yeah, unfortunately, you can't post anything if uh, there's no rugby involved. That as well. Yeah, I mean, I think look, coming to a point there, um, I think Squidge mentioned it earlier this week, where currently, as the situation stands, Scotland are going to be the nation to win the first ever test match and to win the last ever test hey, match. Let's just hope that that doesn't uh, last forever. <laughs> right, um, so with the, this break, um, it gives us a chance to go and research and catch up on old games, read some books and actually study the game. And that's the whole point of our podcast. And tonight specifically, we're going to be talking about chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And uh, that's more current, uh, commonly known as CTE. And um, yes, uh, I think that's a, that's a good topic to, to get uh, to head forward with. Yeah, and I think it's quite relevant, um, especially with, uh, with the trend in the, the day and age with players suffering from concussions. I mean, uh, if I had to ask you, who's the famous set of New Zealand uh, brothers that's currently playing, who would that be? Yeah, we uh, we've got the. I'd say that comes to mind. We've got the Barrett brothers and the Ioni brothers. Yeah, so the Bar- Barrett brothers. Can you name them? We've got Geordie, uh, uh, Scott, and Bowden Barrett. Yeah, but you're forgetting about the fourth one, Kane Barrett, who had to stop playing in 2014 after in the in the, only after starting playing professionally for the Blues had to stop due to concussions. Wow, yes. And he hasn't played a game since, and he's back on the Barrett farm while his brothers are shining in the limelight. Yeah, that's, that, that's quite sad. Um, so tonight, um, we're with, the, with that setting the scene on uh, actually quite a serious topic, we will be looking at the history of CTE, um, World Rugby's role and what they've done and what they've changed in the last couple of years. We'll also have a look at some of the players that have have been forced to retire, which is quite a long list, and then we will go into a conclusion. Perfect. Research of brain injuries as a result of repeated head injuries began in the 1920s. Today, the neurodegenerative disease is known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. There are many documented cases of CTE found uh, specifically from contact sports such as boxing, American football, ice hockey and rugby. So with that uh, in mind, it's quite interesting to see how it's impacted the sport. Governing bodies, 
decisions made by governing bodies, decisions made by players with this information that's coming out now. Because CTE, the name CTE, only recently got associated with this uh, degenerative brain disease. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and the difficult part about this is, as you say, that it's can't, it can't be diagnosed. It can yeah. only be diagnosed at death once a brain autopsy is done. And, um, but the one thing that, you, that, that can be identified are the symptoms of CTE. Okay. Now, our sister uh, code, uh, Rugby League, we just call it the poorer sister, <laughs> Poor so they players get paid very well. <laughs> yeah, no, I know the Australians. The, the NRL is actually still quite a. I must say, it's a good league if you look at competitiveness and keep and and structuring it inside a country. But that's a topic for another day. But they identified certain symptoms on players in what they call the latency period. Now, this is a period after the guys stopped their pro careers or retired from 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 playing professional rugby league, from the period of six months to three years after they play stopped playing. And symptoms that they identified that were prevalent or can be linked to CTE is a, um, a loss of cognitive function, uh, mood swings, a risk of suicide, and behavioral disorders. So these were all changes in a player's personality that occurred once he stopped playing. These were not prevalent whilst they were playing. It's the moment they stopped that these started becoming prevalent. You know, just to add to some of those symptoms, because the, the symptoms list is actually quite broad, and not each and each player re reacts very differently to to concussions. So some of the other symptoms that I found was confusion, memory loss, uh, problems paying attention, and I think that uh, pro paying attention could be uh, could result in players not being able to uh, keep down a job, losing a job. And uh, another one is difficult with keeping balance and normal motor skills. No, definitely. But And there on the flip side, where there's another problem, is um, uh, Dr. Martin Rafferty, who is the Chief Medical Officer of World Rugby, recently reacted with criticism on a NRL study where they did two, uh, autopsy on two players that had recently passed away. Now, these were middle-aged players. They weren't identified as who the players were. Um, they had played professional rugby league for a period of 10 years or more. They, on autopsy, they both had identified as being as passing away from CTE. But yet, if you look at the, their history, they, had, they appeared no, none of the symptoms. The one, one player went into business and had a successful business career up until his death, while, had, never showed any mood swings never had any problems with substance abuse, what it, it, what we'll call a model citizen. The second player had some issues after he stopped playing, not to a great extent. I mean, he, he struggled to find his feet, but after finding his feet, he, he had a job that he kept down for years up until his death. So in those cases, both players actually had CTE, according to autopsies, but didn't even show the symptoms. So it makes it that, that much more difficult, difficult. to identify. Yeah. Um, interesting thing here that I've just pulled up. There's no evidence that a single concussion increases CTE risk. And not everyone with a history of recurring concussions will, will develop CTE. Uh, researchers strongly suspect that CTE is most likely to occur 
following a large number of traumatic brain injuries. Even without the loss of consciousness, a small number or more severe traumatic brain injuries or some other pattern of head trauma. There is evidence linking moderate and severe traumatic brain uh, injuries to higher risk of developing other brain conditions such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Well, that's exactly a problem that the NFL is having at the moment. A high number of uh, ex-NFL players have been developing Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and this is in a contact sport where they try to protect the head as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and if we, one, we've, we've already di- uh, discussed diagnosis. There isn't, it's, it's very difficult to diagnose. It's, uh, it's all guesswork now at the moment. Um, and players are being forced to, and I'm being, uh, I'm being quite uh, uh, brief with, uh, with uh, explaining diagnosis there. Um, but to, the treatment, today there is no treatment and no cure for CTE. The only known way to prevent it is to avoid repeated head, head injuries. And I think that's, a, that's going to lead us now into us discussing World Rugby and the actions that they have taken to try and reduce the amount uh, of head in, uh, repeated head injuries that players uh, occur, uh, that players occur, uh, incur during a season. Well, yeah. And I mean, it, it, the medical field has got a saying, uh, prevention is always better than cure. But how much emphasis do you need to play, place on prevention? when there is no cure. Yeah. Um, before we, we head over and we start talking about world rugby, the, the big thing is, at this stage, because it cannot be prevented, any action taken is basically to mitigate the, the impact, to reduce the impact on uh, of the concussion. And I think that's had a massive impact on people's view of the game. And when you, you look at the way the game is played, the speed at which the game is played, it's definitely, the game def- definitely hasn't gotten soft. So, you know, I think to keep the game alive and to get more people playing the game, there needs to be a certain amount of responsibility taken by all of us who are involved in the game. Well, yeah, I mean, if even in this time where we are all mostly self-isolating and there's no rugby to watch, even if you go back and watch something like the Springbok Saga, have a look at some of the test matches played in 96, 97, 98, and compare that intensity that you see to the intensity now, then you can see the intensity of the game has gotten that much higher, which poses just that much higher of a risk. So saying the game has gone soft, I mean, that's, uh, that's really uh, not a true reflection of the game in the current form. A major development in rugby over the past five years has been the decision by World Rugby to address and deal with the rate and impact of concussion in rugby. So, when we look at concussion, World Rugby has got a player welfare page. And listeners can go to playerwelfare.worldrugby.org forward slash concussion. On this page, you will get a whole bunch of posters that you can download in all different languages that uh, speak to concussion, what is concussion, uh, how is it supposed to be identified, and what I, the, the one I liked the most, which was most important, was the return to playing protocol. And that speaks to club level, school level, and professional level. So, if I have to talk about myself, I never self-diagnosing myself ever suffered from concussion um but back 
20 years ago, you know, you took a head knock, you went home, you slept it off, and the following Monday you were back at practice, and you would play the play the following week. Um, so for me, I think I'm very lucky because I've never actually been knocked out and suffered and suffered from head, head uh, a head injury playing the game. Yeah, I've broken a couple of bones and maybe torn a hamstring here and there, but I've never suffered the way somebody like Pat Lambie suffered from a from a head to the head. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you, you talk about 20 years ago. I mean, it's not even that long ago, about a good five, six, seven years ago when I was still involved uh, as a strength and conditioning coach for a few rugby clubs and um, to keep this anonymous and not point anybody out with, the, with, with, with what I'm about to disclose. At that stage, there was no formal rugby protocol in terms of how to diagnose the, con- diagnose the concussion and also a return to play protocol. A lot of the information you used at that stage was related from FIFA. They had a lot of information regarding concussions. Um, the NSCA, the National Strength and Conditioning Association in uh, the USA, a lot of their work up, uh, was was used as a basis to form a, 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 a to diagnose a concussion and actually um, say test the player uh, with certain symptoms with related to concussion. Now, one of the big issues that we used to have a few years ago as a as, as somebody in the strength and conditioning field doing this was that if a player was diagnosed was diagnosed as having a concussion and you tested him throughout the week leading up to a game if you said as the conditioning coach this player is not fit to play the player said you know what i don't feel fit to play and the coach said there's nothing wrong he can play he would have played on the saturday because well, that's what the coach said so coaches in that sense um, actually, as has done in my this is an opinion has done more harm than good in forcing key players back onto the field in the past by actually um, not following this, not having a protocol and not having a return to play protocol that play, that coaches could just ignore. And if and in situations there were times where players would go that would have gotten a concussion the previous Saturday started playing on the following Saturday and within 10 minutes had to come off because they were stuttering all over the place. So, I mean, coaches used to, and the coaches would not take any responsibility for that. That fell onto you, but your role used to get taken away by coaches in that in that setup. And I think but it's... The, yeah, sorry to interrupt there, but I think it's very important. You know, as an individual, when you sign up to any contact sport, be it MMA, be it boxing, karate, American football, rugby, you and accept that there's a reasonable chance for some form of injury that will take place, be it a blown out knee, a shoulder injury, concussion. As a player, you you understand that and you take that, you, you accept that risk. But as individuals, we still have a responsibility to make sure, and that's why we've got laws of rugby, so that we play within the, the realms of these laws and it looks after the player and, you know, to it's to reduce the amount of injuries that take place. Yeah, well, I mean, in that sense, and you're correct in that reducing the, in the amount of injuries, but let's take a situation where we've got clubs and we, we understand the nature of the club rugby scene um, prior to this year's Gold Cup announcement, where you had to be in the top one or two of your province to get 
exposure on a national level. So if you are vying as a club for one of those spots, I mean, it's easy if you've got one of your star players that's um, dislocated the shoulder or that's um, torn a ligament and understand that he's out. But if there's an injury that you cannot see and you have that win-at-all-cost mentality, what would you, would, would you prefer not to pick a player that would be vital for your club getting exposure at that kind of levels? Yeah, it's uh, you know it, it makes me really worry because when you look at if you look professionally, some of the teams that actually do the best are the teams that actually put player welfare at the forefront uh, of the of playing. If you look at Saracens, if you look at the Crusaders, the the players there come first. Well, that's exactly when you mentioned player welfare. The first name that came to mind to me was Saracens. I mean, you've got situations where a guy like Scott Brits currently is seen as an exception. I mean, that should be the norm. If you think about a player who was managed so well in his career during his time at Saracens, I mean, I think when he, when he, when he left the Stormers, nobody of us would have expected Skulkberger to still feature Skull in a, uh, Skull Brits to still feature in a World Cup yeah. in uh, in ten, 10 years from from that time. Yep. I mean, it's, and it, it compare that to somebody like Scott Berger, yeah, who, who retired way before him. Brian Evander, who retired way before him. Yeah, and and those are two different positions, but he's in the front row. He's at the coalface, and yet yeah. he played longer. Another player who made it till the age of thirty-six, Francois Olo. Yeah, and those were players that were looked after by the English leagues. Now compare the time that a Scott Brits and a Francois Olo spent in the English leagues and compare that to the amount of time that Skulk Berger spent at Saracens and that Brian Abana spent at Toulon. Those time frames are much shorter for the latter compared to the former. Yeah. So what World Rugby has done to help mitigate and to to reduce the number of head collisions in the game and the impact of these head collisions is they developed the high tackle framework and that's also available on the, the World Rugby website. And when this framework came out, there was lots of confusion by, by fans. So a lot of fans who watched the game didn't even know the framework was out until after the game and they didn't understand what the ref was saying and how he was how the ref was looking at it. But fast forward two years, we've I've got I've written down here two tack uh, three tackles. The first one, we all know Owen Farrell. It's a tackle on Andre Esterhazen. Now that one, that tackle was one of the very first ones that should have gone under this uh, high tackle framework. His tackle was high. He had a swinging arm. His contact, he did, if I, when I look at it, he doesn't make contact with the head. But it's in that right in that zone that causes a bit of whiplash. And... That, if you followed the the, the protocol as, a, as it stands today, would have been a yellow card and a penalty for South Africa. And it could have changed the, the, the whole outcome of that game because it would have taken us, it would have given us, we, I think we had about one minute left on the clock, we could have kicked for goal, we could have kicked for the corner, gone for a, a pushover try and we could have won the test at Twickenham. The ref got the call wrong. Fast forward a little bit, England versus Wales. Early on in the game, Hadley Parks. High tackle, around the, the shoulder, should have been, uh, sorry, um, his head, it was against the head with force. 
and the mitigate there wasn't many there wasn't mitigating factors it should have been a red there, there wasn't even a penalty if i remember correctly no nope. move to the end of the game monitor loggy bit of a slinging arm full force diving in at a player he got a red card <coughs> and the sighting commission upheld the red card because it was reckless it was dangerous and it was and if he had made contact with um george north and I've looked at that video clip a couple of times, and it actually does look like George North has a flash knockout. Um, I urge everybody to go and actually go and uh, look at that video clip. And the reason I bring up those tackles is we've got the framework in place, yet the ref on the field with his two assistant referees and the TMO are still getting those calls wrong and I don't know if there's too much mitigation or they they, they panic under the pressure of having to make a call at, at test level but the high tackle framework that has been implemented has shown positive results in 2019 there was a reduction in uh, concussions go to the, if you look at the Rugby World Cup 2019, from the quarterfinal stage onwards, the player behavior had changed and there were no red or yellow cards for players tackling recklessly. Yeah, there was only, if you think about it, 2019 World Cup had eight red cards, which was double the most of a previous World Cup of, of four. But those were all in the pool stages. Only, yeah, seven of them were in the pool stages. The one that came in the quarterfinals was for a, sw was for a swinging arm which was dangerous and was foul play. It was yeah. nothing to do with the tackle situation. That's right. Oh, but that, that was in the, in the mall, the French player. Yeah. So if you look at that from that sense, it, it took some time to adapt. And it also makes me wonder why didn't this, why didn't they trial the framework a bit earlier to, or than, than, than the pool stages? Because, I mean, we were sitting watching this and thinking, another red card? Where is this going to stop? South Africa, who won the tournament, didn't receive one card. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, so the, the World Rugby put out the framework. It, they put the, the responsibility now on the players to go, this is my responsibility. If I don't comply, I'm going to dr drop my team. Secondly, I could hurt somebody. You know, let me yeah. play within the laws of the game. And I, I think that's where a lot of people dismiss this framework. It's, it's forcing players to play within the laws of the game. Yeah, but, but what you mentioned that uh, is a big problem currently is the implementation of this by the officials. Now, if we had to take a look at technology in sport and we take something like uh, VAR in football, which some fans feel is, it's ruining the game because of technological interventions. But in something like this, I mean, I'm taking, take for example, this past weekend, we had the Uandatoy incident where the TMO with much more information in front of him got the call right but was overruled by the ref on the field. Why don't we take that responsibility away from the ref on the field? Say the TMO, you are responsible for decisions on the high tackle because you are in a box where you can actually view it. You've got the framework in front of you. You can actually view the framework and make a an informed decision. You can, he can, he can see it in slow time, he can see it in fast time, he can, and, and they're not, they, they're blowing the outcome, they're not blowing the intention. So even if the intention was never to, to injure the player, you still, as the tackler, got to have the responsibility to, 
to do something to try and mitigate it being a dangerous tackle. Well, okay. that, that's exactly. If you look at playing the a man in the air, it's your responsibility to bring him down safely. Doesn't even matter what the circumstances were leading up to that. So, in terms of that, why on the high tackle are there different circumstances? Why can't we just have the TMO take control of that and give the full mandate to the TMO and says that's his decision? That if you are the, the ref on field, you don't have all of that information in front of you. Even if you're looking at on the on the big screen. Yes, but you don't have a framework in front of you to actually analyze what's going on. And I think, according to that, that will that that will make fans happier because there will be consistency in that. I think and the you're hitting course. the nail on the head. I, I, I think the, the the fans actually don't care what gets put in place. Whatever gets put in place, it must be consistent throughout. So no, when you, the, the the biggest gripe that comes from fans with any decision made on the field is was it consistent because and that's why we have laws you know so the law must be applied evenly to both teams and then you get you you have some coaches and uh, and fans who will complain that the, the the ref is being biased and we're playing against 16 players you know that making statements like that go against the spirit of the game yeah so i think the, the i think the world rugby might have been late to the party in terms of concussion however they they are they almost leading the way in some of the decision making they're doing into trying to reduce the impact of concussions and the later effect of CTE on players, yeah, which is which needs to be commended. Yeah, and I think fans will also enjoy the game better with the moment they understand that there's actually only two sets of laws. One set for all the other players and one set especially for Owen Farrell. And if we can get past that <laughs> yeah, then, then we sort it. Then we sort it, then the game can continue. And then uh, if we look at it, another interesting initiative that uh, was announced in August 2019 that's currently being trialled in the lower French community leagues with the plan of taking it up to higher leagues with a lead up of implementing it at the 2023 World Cup is successful is another variation on the tackle law. And that is that tackles should only take place below the waist. Now, what they don't clarify is if it's tack where, where from where does the waist start? Is it from the nipple line of the player? Is it above the rib cage or below the rib cage? But what they're looking at is to say, let's bring the level down even further in terms of where the tackle is supposed to be taking place. Yeah, that's quite uh, drastic because I know there was the nipple law last year uh, that was trialed at the under nineteen World Cup. I think they trialed the the nipple law yes, there. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and it, uh, it it ended up uh, with a good couple of red cards being issued. Um, and I think that they were trialing the high tackle framework over that period. But for me, I don't I don't think that's yeah. Without knowing exactly where, where, how low that the, the player must go, because the problem is if you go too low, a lot of the a lot of head concussions come from the hip connecting with the tackler. Yeah. Um, so l l let's just categorize quick. Your concussions come from head to head, shoulder to head, hip to head, and knee to head. And um, so, you know, if you, yes, you, you've taken you're taking out the shoulder to the head and the head to head, but you're still going to have your knee and your your hips that are going to uh, that can, can cause concussion. So, yes, you've reduced the amount of concussions, but you've limited to two. You've just taken out two of the things that could cause concussion. 
Um, I think what it, what it will do is it'll teach proper tackle technique. Yeah, well, definitely. I think, well, trying to analyze what, what the thinking is behind that. Um, it, it feels to me, if you look at it, that they've only taken the tackled player into account here and his impact with the ground following the tackle. Because um, watching a few clips and actually going and seeing where what an impact is of a tackle that's shoulder height and compared to a tackle that's waist height, a tackle that's shoulder height, 50% of the time, the player falls on the uh, makes impact with the ground with his shoulder or head. Whereas if in the instance of a player being tackled waist, if you look at where the impact is mostly, it's mostly on his lower uh, upper back yes. or lower back that impact is made with deck. And so, then there's a reduction in the, the whiplash effect as well on the, on the body. That's, that's the, the next point, uh, right? that reduction in the whiplash effect when the, by tackling a player um, at waist level. So I think that's the the thought that's that's gone into this. But as you mentioned again, but now it's taking it's putting more danger on the tackled or the tackler in this sense. And I think World Rugby should just be very careful if they're going to trial this, because if they're going to move it up throughout the French leagues and implement it at the 2023 World Cup as a start, we've seen at the last World Cup what happens when a framework is introduced at six a, months before a. It, it creates outliers in terms of cars being issued, and we're going to have another. We, we could have another potential issue like that in uh, in four, in twenty twenty three, if that's the way they're going. Um, I mean, but but looking at that, even if you look at some of the great tackles um, highlight reels on YouTube, and I, when when looking at this, a lot of your great tackles. I mean, it's not. It won't take away that much from the game, in terms of. Um, saying the game's gone soft. I mean, some of the greatest you've seen are ankle taps, waist-high tackles, knee-high tackles, which shows that it's not gonna, it won't take away of the spectacle. But as you said, how is it going to put more risk on the, tackle, on the yeah. tackler? And if that's the case, then, I mean, it's, it's robbing Peter to pay Paul again. Yeah. And just, uh, again, you, the, every action we take is, the aim is, will it reduce reduce the chance of incurring CTE from the sport you're playing. But at the same time, that impact can only be measured many, many years down the line. So for me, we, World Rugby must be very careful, and the, the guys with the glasses and the suits at World Rugby must be very careful in amending laws and making changes that changes the fabric of the game. Yeah, I, I mean, okay, so we've got the, the, the high tackle framework that's come in now. Let's give it four years, end of this cycle, and look at the amount of players that has to retire because of concussion and compared with the previous cycle before we start making any decisions on that. Shifting and looking at players that have retired from the game now, the chaps at the Blitz Defense, and they've got their own little webpage, have put out a 61 player uh, player list. Uh, they last updated it on November 20th, 2019. And I must admit, I was really surprised that some of the players' names that, uh, that uh, retired from the game due to concussion. And you know a lot of these players, they, they retire. And you 
you don't actually realize it's because of concussion. What The one thing that I want to point out that they've put on here is, uh, where they could, they've included uh, newspaper links, uh, news article links, sorry, uh, for each player, uh, whether the player announced his retirement and it, the reason it is due to a head knock, due to concussion, multiple head knocks, on advice by, uh, by the doctor. And the very first name on that list is Nick Berry, who had to retire at the age of 28. Yeah, and I mean, that wasn't even uh, from recurring. That was from a, a season opener, concussive episode in a season opener for Harlequins, which meant that just that... Wasps. Uh, sorry, for Wasps, yeah. yes. So, I mean, uh, first game, not even the first game of the season, one incident, and that was it. Yeah. Next player on that list, and we won't cover each player, but uh, is Anthony Fainga. You know, it says here, the 32-year-old revealed the lingering effects of concussion were so bad, he had to be held up at the altar of his twin brothers and fellow ex-Wallaby uh, ex Saez wedding due to the head injury. You know, um, and you still got people when you 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 read that, you, you and you still got people who go, the game's gone soft. We you know we don't need the the high tackle framework in place. You know, I, I just you can yeah, I'm getting a little bit. Yeah, but those are the, probably the same type of people that want half of the game to be WWE and the other half to be rugby, really. Yeah. And then I mean the next one that that this was the most interesting for me because I didn't even notice it, and that's actually the first player to officially. Call call an end to the to the day because of a concussion. There was Alton Flatley. Yeah, I mean, how do you go from kicking a penalty to send your team into extra time of a World Cup final, and three years later, at the age of twenty eight, where you're supposed to be in your prime, and you have to call it the day because of uh, seven concussions in the space of two years. Yeah, I mean, at twenty eight, you're not supposed to be thinking about those type of brain injuries already yeah i'm just having a look at some of the age of some of these players that are, have retired and they're all roughly between the ages of 28 30 31 32 34 um you know so that's quite uh you know that ties in with playing the game for 20 years you know the yeah. the effects of concussion are only only really start showing six to eight years after and all these players you know they were definitely they were very likely playing the uh, playing rugby from the age of ten. You know, I, I feel like we're scaring some uh, scaring some of the people here, uh, like not to play rugby. But it's you know we we're paying for our sins now, and now the, the the only way we can make reparations is to is to actually put proper measures in place to try and reduce the the impact of concussion. Yeah, I mean we look at it even in. Um... Just two more examples, the Ben Afiaki in New Zealand. I mean, he uh, had a head clash with a fellow teammate, Brody Rotelic. It's a guy on his own team. And at age of 27, preparing for a World Cup, and now you have to call it the end of the day. And then, as we mentioned at the start, Kane Barrett, age 22, and he took an elbow to the jaw while training for the Blues. I mean, and that that's the end of his, of his career. And I mean, the one person who wasn't listed on this list, but to just show the severity of this, um, Jamie Cudmore, ex-Canadian lock. Now, I mean, if, if you, for those of you who don't know who Jamie Cudmore is, if you had to picture him, he's like the love child of a high-felt outhouse and a, an Apache helicopter. This guy was, he was a machine. But 
he actually won a court case against Clermont uh, early last year because of the effects of concussions. Now, to give you a background on this, I mean, this was a guy who, during the 2015 Heineken Cup season, was continuously played, uh, took continuous knocks. Um, at the end of the semi-final, he went off in the, in the semi-final for Clermont, said, I'm not in the state to play, yet was chosen for the final. And the knock-on effects of that is, is that this guy is, is showing, he's already showing symptoms, the symptoms we mentioned earlier, yeah. cognitive problems. I mean, you look at him and the size of that guy, and you think, no, and if, if somebody of that size and that impact in the game, and and he was a hard player, if if he suffers from this, then what chance are there for the, the Elton Yankees of the world, if you look yeah. at it from that point yeah. of view? Frightening, yeah. I just had a quick count. I think I counted 21 names on the New Zealand list, and I think it's the longest mm list and uh, name list out of all the teams and players that have been uh, added you know so the game yes the game's played differently in South Africa to the way it's played in Australia and New Zealand but 21 players in New Zealand that have had to that have been forced to retire that's quite that's quite a hectic number um, no, de- definitely and I mean I think we've, we've all admired the New Zealand system for quite some time now their central contracting model the way that they've been able to churn players, but it's also been seen at, at what costs. Firstly, okay, the financial cost we've all heard about is that the system that they've created there has cost them so much money that clubs are playing bankrupt. I mean, you've got guys yeah. um, that had to go play that had, that had to go play in China or being being based in China just to make money for the Bay of Plenty and for Southland unions um, during a, one of these rebel tours. But um, from that, now you can actually, you see the, the high number of players. I mean, yes, they've got a great production line, but at what cost if it means that well, how many of those guys in that production line will suffer life-threatening injuries because of that? Yeah. You know, at the bottom of the blog, they've got, uh, they, start, they start counting players from, 20, uh, from 2006. And it's quite staggering how the, the increase of players over the years 2006 1 2007 1 2010 3 2012 3 2013 4 2014 5 2015 a rugby world cup year 9 2016 it dropped to 6 2017 8 2018 13 players retired from the game 2019 we had 8 players retire from the game due to concussion yeah now you wonder sometimes if you look at that, how many players still try to push through that because it's a World Cup year. But if you're looking at those numbers, it, it, it correlates with the speed of the game going up, the efficiency, the training methods going up. So, I mean, if all of this is going up and we're leaving one element behind, I mean, it shows that we player welfare definitely needs to be taken a lot more seriously. Yeah. And... Um, it's paramount. It's paramount. And this actually, I mean, it, when I was at university and we had, a, we had a sports psychology subject, and I mean, there was only, I think, two people that really took sports psychology seriously as a, as, a, as, as, a, um, as a professional career path. But if you think about it now, I mean, if you look, look at all these impacts and what it would have for the, on a player, I mean, 
it would make sense for every pro team to at least have a, a full-time sports psychologist as part of their makeup and not have somebody from a university that actually that only comes into on a consultancy basis. Yeah. You know, I want to, as we, as we head into the conclusion part of the, of the, of the pod, the, the one thing I want to note here, they list Jared Payne, but he's not on the official concussion list. He retired from Alston Island duty in May of 2018 through complications leading from a head injury suffered on the 2017 British and Irish Lions tour. Um, it goes on to say that the Ulster director of Rugby Les Kiss stated that the episodes were not concussion related. So if, the, if these concussions, were, uh, or sorry, if this head injury was not related to concussions, how long had Jared been, Payne been playing with some form of head injury or something that happened to his to, to the head, you know, and only got diagnosed later in in, in his life or after an uh, after a head injury, oh. you know, and how many other players uh, uh, has that happened to? Um, who's that? There's that Australian player that I, that I've just thought of who he ended up having a fit on the field and he. You're gonna have to to come back to that. His name's he played for Australia. He had a, he had a. I think I can't remember. I think it was during a Super Rugby match. He actually had a, an episode on the field, and they they took him off, and then it. Uh, he had um, an, a brain aneurysm or something, you know. Yeah, so I'm trying to also remember. I don't know if you. Yeah. If it, it's we'll, we'll have to we'll, we'll have to look that up. See if we can look it up before signing off. Yeah. So and if you look at this, just to um, summarize. The amount of top players, and it, I mean, if you look at it, it's young players. Now you're going into, you're signing off from rugby into a professional world where your, in most cases, your cognitive abilities would would be increased just that much more, and you're re, you're going in with a bit of a, a a deficit if if you've already been suffering all of these injuries, and how's it going to affect the players later on in life? Yeah. So I mean, from a building a professional career after rugby, I mean. Some, and you look at all the symptoms related to that, it's going to create a bit of a struggle there. Yeah, well, well I'll try and remember and look up the that player that, that went off. I think it was an epileptic fit. Um, another interesting thing, in the NFL, the one year they did a, and I know there's a YouTube clip on it, on the Seattle Seahawks, they actually adopted rugby tackling instead of just blocking and smashing into players. For two reasons. One, it put the safety of the player. It put the safety of the player, player's head, because of their the technique. The player was getting his head in the right area, and it yeah. and they took out the head to head contact. And secondly, they found that the the hit was better, and was they were bringing down the player, and the, so that it was a more efficient way of stopping the play. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's. Speaking exactly of the NFL, in research for this, one of the things I actually came across is that NFL is considering banning head-to-head helmet-to-helmet collisions. I mean, if you think about it, how how counterintuitive is that in the first place? Yeah. I think from a even from a tackling point of view, I mean that's the one thing. The NFL is a very precise and efficient um, code, but in terms of tackling, they've had it wrong for uh, quite a number of, a, a number of years already. Yeah, the the player I'm talking about is Julian Huxley. Yes, yes, I uh, halfback. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think he was a fly off. 
fullback uh, full, full and halfback uh, half for the for the, for the Reds. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, and he had a, he had an episode on the field, and that was uh, down to um, epilepsy. Yeah. So there you. Or see... am, I, am I lying? I'm sure that's what I read here now. So yeah, we don't want to pass out fake in, fake information with with uh, everything going out as it is. Yes. So yeah, it was Julian Huxley uh, suffering a seizure during a match against Queensland. So he was, uh, I think, he was playing for the Rebels at the time. Okay. So um, yeah, heading into to conclusion is the that's that brings us to the end of uh, tonight's discussion. Um, it's actually quite an intense discussion, so it's something that I, I highly recommend everybody go and study up and read. And not being a doctor and um, not being in the medical field, it was actually quite taxing and uh, studying and reading up on the CTE and the documents that uh, that we read. And we didn't even touch on Muhammad Ali. No, no, not even close to that yet. You know, um, and uh, if you look how he suffered from Parkinson's and possibly Alzheimer's in in these later years from from boxing, it, it it was quite hectic. Yeah, I mean, as you said, he was known for being able to take a punch. Yeah. But what were the consequences of that? Yeah. So yeah, I think we've we've covered quite a lot today, compared to as you say, very taxing on that. Um, I think just to to final to 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 sign off on this is that. Uh, Events such as clubs being sued by players would, I mean, it's going to show that World Rugby needs to take this a lot more seriously. And also, again, uh, coaches. I think I think it's more the coaches and the, the players and the support staff and the supporters need to take seriously what World Rugby is are putting doing. in place and what they yeah. are doing. No, I, I, and I think also the emphasis on coaches. Yes. Because that, yes, we understand your job is at the line. On the line, but it can't be to the detriment of a player of the rest of a player's life following the game. Yeah. Thank you very much. In conclusion, our upcoming podcast we're looking at every two weeks, and uh, we will be hoping to in the next two weeks with uh, all the replays and time watching, looking for old video footage and stuff. Richard and I will be sitting back and watching. Chasing Great, which is the Richie McCaw movie, and we will be hoping to deconstruct that movie and bring you ideas and concepts and things that we learned about the, the great player. Perfect. Looking forward to that. Cheers, everybody. Keep safe. Cheers. This episode was researched and hosted by Andre and Richard. Rugby Deconstructed, hosted on Anchor. Available on Google Podcast, Apple and Spotify. Music supplied by Anchor. Cover art by Andre. Produced by My Rugby Posts. This is a self-funded pod for the love of the game.